Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Pinecker, and uh, I'm really excited for having this next guest on. Um, my guest here uh, is a pretty well-known Lutheran theologian and writer, and uh, he also has a very popular YouTube channel. Um, and uh, he posted a video last week about five reasons why I am not a Mormon. And then I thought, he did his research. He, he's not an anti-Mormon. And the reason why I say that is because he also does videos, five reasons why I'm not a Catholic, and five reasons why I'm not charismatic. And uh, so he's, he's just basically making the statement that he's a Lutheran, and these are the reasons why I am a Lutheran. And he's affiliated with the church called Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It's and I the... want to welcome my guest. Um, no, you're not. You're in communion with him. We'll, we'll talk about that. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jordan D. Cooper, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm, I'm excited about our conversation. I, I am too. And, and just so the clarification, tell them what actual branch of Lutheranism you're part of. Yeah, sure. So people, uh, people often associate us with the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, because they're kind of the more well-known group that we are, we are in, in fellowship with. So the, the group that I'm a part of is called the AALC, uh, which is the American Association of Lutheran Churches. So we were a group that basically... Lutheran history is complicated, uh, <laughs> just as, you know, LDS history is. We have a number of different, you know, different groups uh, within the broader Lutheran church body, church bodies. But uh, within the United States, uh, the largest Lutheran church body is the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church uh, in America. And when this was basically a merger of a number of other church bodies, one of those being the ALC, well, there were a group of churches that were not comfortable with the stances of the, the ELCA when that merger occurred, so they decided to kind of stay back and not join the merger. That's how the AALC came about, uh, but we are in full fellowship with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is uh, more well-known because they're a, larger, they're a larger group. And of course, the uh, Missouri Synod is known to be more conservative and orthodox confessional Lutheranism, yes. um, and I think, folks, just so you know, uh, I, you know, most of my largest group of, of, of audience is LDS folk. And so it's probably hard for you to navigate these worlds. So I just want to explain, you have all these, a lot of Lutheran bodies in the 80s merged and became um, the mainline Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. And then you also have a historical group called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. You also have another group that's based on Wisconsin Synod Church a group as well. Yeah. And these are all more conservative churches. And they did not align themselves with the more liberal mainline. And um, and just real quick, let's just talk a little bit about Lutheran history in America. I want to give us, I want to yeah. give my audience a little history of Lutheranism in the United States, and then we're going to jump off and talk about the, why you're not a Mormon. Um, and one of the things is that, like for instance, I come from a Reformed background, um, and in the 19th century, a lot of Lutheran Men, people who are going into the ministry were training at reformed seminaries. And what happened was a lot of them were becoming Calvinist or reformed. Yes. And so that the Lutherans at this time decided they're going to kind of separate themselves a bit from the rest of American Protestantism. Maybe we could start there. Yeah, sure. So American Christianity is very much rooted within Calvinism, kind of all forms of American Christianity one way or another. And, you know, that makes sense, of course, with the Puritans. Uh, being reformed Calvinists themselves. So that's just kind of been in the DNA, I think, of, of American Christianity in particular. And it, and it still influences even the conversations that we have in the church today, whether they're Calvinist churches or not, they've really shaped the categories that we do use uh, to, to discuss things with each other. So in the 19th century, a number of Lutheran groups came over to the United States. A lot of them were in the Midwest, so the kind of majority Lutheran population is in the Midwestern United States. And this is the time when people to, were uh, settling those areas that hadn't previously been, been settled. But there are, you know, in New York and Ohio, and there are other places as well, Pennsylvania, Lutherans settled uh, earlier than that. And so you get all of these uh, people starting, you know, kind of Lutheran communities. And the because the reformed milieu is so prominent within the United States, a lot of the, the theological institutions, something like Princeton Seminary, are going to be reformed. Now, Princeton Seminary is probably kind of the, the chief theological seminary in the United States in the 19th century. Uh, a lot of really great scholars, uh, you know, biblical scholars and theologians come out of and are teaching at Princeton Seminary. So 
some Lutheran clergy start attending those reformed seminaries because those are really the institutions that they're the best academically and they're the most you know, well-known and renowned at the time. And coming out of Princeton Seminary, some of those now new Lutheran pastors adopted some ref particularly reformed or non-Lutheran ideas about a number of doctrines, and so started bringing them into the, the Lutheran church. And it, it's at that point that the Lutherans in America really had to decide what is our identity going to be? You know, they're, they're at this point that, you know, I think every religious group comes to of like, of defining ourselves. Who are we? How do we relate to the people around us? How are we going to de define what it is that we believe teaching confess? So within those conversations, you had a couple of different approaches to Lutheranism uh, that, that emerged out of the 19th century, the mid 19th century. So the one is this idea that there is some kind of uniquely American form of Lutheranism. Uh, so they call it an American Lutheranism, which is really influenced by the Reformed, which is going to say, well, we're not really going to stand strongly upon our Lutheran distinctives. And there's another group that we refer to as confessional Lutherans. Now, confessional means that we have a book of confession that's called the Book of Concord, which is a number of documents that outlines what we believe that scripture teaches. And so a confessional Lutheran says that they affirm all of the things that are in that book. They affirm that not because they believe we believe that book is divinely inspired like scripture, but because uh, we believe that the exposition of scripture contained in that book is accurate. It's consistent with what the word of God teaches. So confessional Lutherans affirm that, and we distinguish ourselves from the Reformed and from other Protestant groups. Uh, and so it's out of that, that, you know, kind of, there, there's a there's a long history, and I could say a lot about 19th century American Luther history. It's a really interesting history and a really complicated one because there are so many groups that come out of it. You know, sometimes I refer to it as like alphabet soup because we've got these just you've got all all of the titles. You got and so even so today you think ELCA, AALC, NALC, LCMC. It can all get very very confusing. But uh, to kind of break down where that's led to today, kind of where the Lutheran world is. Essentially, there are really three groups of of Lutherans, and these are there are international bodies which are not so within Lutheranism. It's not like you have in something like the the Roman Catholic Church, say, where there is a desire for a kind of institutional unity, where you have one person that's the head of all Roman Catholics, as you would with, with the Office of the Papacy. Um, we don't see the necessity of fellowship in terms of structure in that way. Uh, we don't see that we all need to be under exactly the same authorities, uh, for example. So, so these are, are, there are looser kind of conferences or councils that contain a bunch of church bodies worldwide that have all affirmed that they believe teach and confess the same things. So we could we go to community each other's churches. I could preach at their church. They could come preach at my church. And so we've got basically three groups. Now there is the Lutheran World Federation, which is the more progressive group. So they're the more uh, kind of the heirs of Protestant liberalism. So that's what you'll find in, in the ELCA. Um, then you see the, the International Lutheran Council, the ILC, as it's called. And that is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And our church is part of that. So we have churches all across the world. Uh, so we've got, you know, churches in Africa and South America and North America, all over Europe, uh, Western and Eastern Europe. So we have, we have fellowship, we have uh, connections with church bodies all, all over the place. And then there is the most conservative group, which is what the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod is a part of, and that's the CELC, the Confessional Evangelical Lutheran Conference. I have it written down here because I sometimes mix up the, <laughs> the, the letters there. <laughs> so, um, but because so, it is hard to kind of keep it straight. And, and that group is going to be the, the furthest right, uh, if you're talking theologically, kind of on the right-left spectrum uh, where, where things are at, which you know doesn't always align politically with the same things as left and right. But um, that group has a stricter view of, of Christian fellowship. So they would say that... Uh, you cannot, you should not pray with a Christian who has a different confession, who's a Christian, but one of a different tradition. So we don't hold that strict a view of, of Christian fellowship that we have to agree with everything doctrinally in order to have kind, certain kinds of fellowship, at least with, with other Christians. And, and some of that really comes out of those debates with the reforms, the question of, well, how are we going to relate to the form? How, how do we keep our distinctive identity without becoming the reform? So they took kind of the strictest view of that. Um, 
whereas we're kind of in the, I guess, the, the middle position. And the middle position essentially says that uh, we want to keep and retain our distinctive Lutheran identity as strongly as possible. And that means that we're, we're not going to have, you know, non-Lutheran pastors coming and preaching in our pulpits. Um, but at the same time, we do want to cooperate with other Christians in all sorts of other ways. And uh, we, we do recognize the importance of that. So, you know, and this is also, in the 1970s, you had a lot of, uh, a lot of upheaval going on within the uh, mainline Christianity. On right. one hand, you had the charismatic renewal movement, but then on the other hand, you had like a move towards progressivism within the church. And there are two particular church bodies that, if you will, successfully were able to resist this trend. Right. And that would be the Southern Baptist Convention and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, talk about how unique that was. That, that I mean, how did that actually happen? Because it, it just seemed like nine out of 10, I mean, 90% of the, these groups ended up going more in a liberal progressive direction. How is it that they were able to maybe kind of prevent that from happening? Or, yeah, it's uh, and that is an interesting and, and long history as well. So I got to try to try to summarize it. But uh, yeah, at, at that time you have a lot of Protestant liberalism encroaching upon the main line at this point, or what we call maybe call modernism. Um, so that means that there are views of scripture that would say that you know scripture is is not divinely inspired, or at least not all of it is. Perhaps uh, scripture contains things that are true. It contains the word of God, but it is not the word of God. So that there are, this in this position, there are a number of errors that one could point out in scripture. Uh, and there's an adoption of historical critical methodologies where you could say, well, Moses didn't actually write the, you know, the Pentateuch. Those books were part of this kind of lengthy historical process of you know, the, the natural development of Israelite religion, which eventually develops into some kind of ethical monotheism, but that's not really where it starts. So those, those approaches to scripture uh, start to show up, in, they do start to show up in the Missouri Synod seminaries, so Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And the, there is very strong leadership in, in the seminary in St. Louis, uh, that stood very firm on the word of God. There were a number of interviews that happened, and you can access these. There are a number of books. There's a book called uh, Seminary in Crisis, which catalogs this if you want to look at some of the primary source documents of that era and gives that, that history. Uh, but there was some very strong leadership that was very firm on the, the authority of scripture. And this eventually led to what, what's known as seminex or seminary in exile. There was a walkout from St. Louis of professors that were not young students that we're not convinced of things like the inerrancy of scripture, meaning that scripture is without error. And so they staged this walkout and they started this separate seminary uh, and then they started this separate group. So uh, because of the strong leadership in, in the Missouri Synod and specifically at Concordia Seminary, they, the, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was able to stand firmly on the inspiration of scripture, which yeah, was, a, was a, certainly a rarity at that time. Uh, it really was only those, as, as you mentioned, it really was only those two church bodies that were able to successfully retain our own identity and, and kind of fend off uh, liberalism. Um, so, you know, I think this is great because, uh, you know, I, I want to use this channel as an opportunity for us to have these, these dialogues, but also educate. Uh, you know, I want to learn from the restoration things uh, about their history. That's part of the reason I have this channel, but I also want to be able to help maybe educate areas that maybe you're not too familiar with. If you had sure. to summarize confessional Nicene Christianity to a member of, for, to somebody from the restoration, how would you, what, what would be your elevator pitch? Oh boy, that's kind of hard to do. <laughs> yeah, there's so much to say, right? Uh, so you say confessional Nicene Christianity. Uh, so I, I, I guess we could talk about maybe two, two different elements to that. One is maybe our, our doctrine of God, right? Which is what Nicene means, Council of Nicaea. So we're talking about the classical Christian doctrine of God, and then we can move into questions of salvation. So I could summarize those two very briefly, because those are kind of going to be the two most, most key areas. So if we're talking the yeah, Nicene Orthodoxy, what do we mean by that? Um, that is that it, it's, it's our conviction that there is, there is one eternal God, a uh, triune God who exists it in three persons. And that uh, I know is always a bit, a bit complicated. I know people from outside of, of Nicene Christianity always 
have a lot of questions and think the whole thing is very confusing in many ways. Um, but this is something that the church, you know, very much battled in the early centuries was to try to wrestle with these central questions of, well, who is the God that we worship? And I think everybody acknowledges that that's a pretty essential question. <laughs> like, who is the God that we worship? And what is Jesus's relationship to God? Because if Jesus is not, you know, the, the son, the eternal son of the father, if he's not divine, then we shouldn't be worshiping him. And our relationship with him should be quite different. So those those questions really do matter. So essentially, the you know the the doctrine of of the Trinity as it's outlined in Nicaea, really is uh, it can be explained with just just a few affirmations. One is that there is one God, and so that's the you know what we talk about is monotheism most commonly that there there are not multiple divinities. There is one God, and that and that God is distinct from everything in creation. There is this this divide between God and creation, right? creator and creation that can, can't really be bridged. I mean, the incarnation is kind of that bridge, but we can't become creator, in other words, if we're creation. Um, and so there is, there is one God on the side of creator. Everything else is creation. So the, the first is the affirmation that there is, is one God. The second is the affirmation that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so we would not say things like, well, the son is part of God or the son is a little bit God or like God, but no, whatever that one God is, whatever it makes, makes divinity that fully belongs as much to the father as to the son, to the spirit. You know, we have places in scripture, we go to define all these things as well. And then the third part of that would be the father is not the son or the spirit. The son is not the spirit of the father and the spirit is not the son of the father. In other words, they are distinct. So we're not saying that there is a, this is often a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God kind of takes these different forms. Like here he shows up as father, here he shows up as son, here he shows up as spirit. Uh, and, and that's something called modalism, which is rejected in, in the early church. So, um, and continues to be rejected by, by uh, Trinitarian Christians today. So, so we're, you know, rejecting that idea. So the affirmation of those three realities really is what constitutes Trinitarian theology. The conviction that there is there is one God, uh, and that the Father, Son, and Spirit are God, and the Father and Son and Spirit are not identical to one another, but are all God. So that's that's my very brief explanation of, of Nicene Trinitarian theology. But I also think we, we've got to talk about uh, salvation as well, because when we're speaking about who God is, that's never divorced from how it is that we're saved. And you see this in a lot of those early Christian controversies surrounding these Trinitarian questions was that the concern was really always, well, how is it that we can be saved? Because it, it was understood that if, for example, Jesus is not divine, he's not God, then he cannot save us. Uh, you know, we, we have to have a fully divine savior. God is the only savior. Humans are not saviors. So if Jesus really is our savior, he has to be divine. And there's a lot more that could be said to work that out. But that's basically just short summary of that. Um, then we would also say Jesus has to be fully man in order to save us, because what is Jesus's role in salvation is to redeem humanity. In order to redeem humanity, he had to become one of us and take on all aspects of a human nature. So if anything that was assumed by Christ, if there's anything missing in, in that, in the assumption of the human nature, that means that that thing cannot be, cannot be redeemed. Um, and that's a saying that is often repeated from the, the Cappadocian fathers, particular group of church fathers, uh, that, that says that which is not assumed cannot be healed. In other words, Jesus came to heal and redeem and save human nature. And if he didn't assume some part of it, that part of us isn't redeemed. Um, so all of this does have to do with very, the very practical question of how is it that we actually can be saved? And the, the answer is we are saved through uh, what, what Jesus did in the incarnation, uh, in his life of obedience under God's law, and in his, his self-sacrificial death, where he took the penalty of sin, he took death upon himself as he died on the cross, and then through his resurrection from the dead, and in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus won and accomplished eternal life. Uh, as he, he himself conquered death in his own body uh, as he rose from the grave. And so it's, it's in faith and trust in Christ and his work that all that is his becomes ours. So all the blessings of salvation, redemption become ours in faith. Hmm. 
You know, I think uh, one of the most interesting things is that I have a replica of 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. And the most surprising thing about this book is that you could, there's some quibbles, but you could say that generally speaking, the character of God and the Trinity in some form is expressed in this document and that it's much closer to uh, a traditional understanding of the nature of God and the Trinity than what later developments of Mormon doctrine would have of God. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I was when I first had read the Book of Mormon, I was pretty surprised at how how similar the ideas there were to just what is accepted, you know, Trinitarian and Nicene Orthodoxy. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you could go through and probably pick out some things that maybe are are not quite worded in the way that that maybe I would word it. But uh, in terms of just some some general conceptions of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or God being unchangeable or eternally God, those those kinds of things do certainly seem to show up in the Book of Mormon, which is is not really that divergent from from what you'd find in classical orthodoxy. And that's why I find the early days of the Church of what have been would have been called the Church of Christ then is how similar uh, it it is to Protestant uh, American Protestant Christianity. Um, how in my, in my estimation, uh, you know, they always talk about in, in history, how, you know, the, 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 the early church, Christ, the Christian religion was founded by Jews. It was basically a Jewish sect and it would later develop into, uh, Christianity as we understood it, but it was sure. primarily a Jewish sect. And I always tell people the early days of, of Mormonism was that it was primarily a Christian sect because it was founded by Christians. Um, I think that's just what's so fascinating. And I know part of the reason why you're so interested in Mormonism is because you're interested in that particular period of time as well. Maybe let's just talk about what you, the early days of Mormonism, um, some of the, like you said, the Book of Mormon is interesting, but just kind of how you can see maybe a Protestant influence within that world as well. Yeah, sure. So I, um, so I live in upstate New York. Uh, which means, you know, I'm kind of in the, I'm in the area here where, where a lot of this happened. Uh, and there is a lot of uh, revivalism and there's a lot of just religious development going on at that, at that time, obviously, you know, Joseph Smith uh, being, being a figure among others that are, you know, making certain claims and, um, you know, religious leaders in, in this particular area in upstate New York, uh, but other places in the country as well. Um, so the 19th century is such a it's such a fascinating time religiously in the United States. Um, there there's a lot of uncertainty in a lot of ways. There are a lot of new movements. There are a lot of questions about about how how do we relate to our, our the inheritance of the past, and how we relate to classical Christian ideas when the world is changing really quickly in the 19th century. Uh, modernity, uh, you know, is is encroaching upon things. So the culture in general is asking a lot of questions about how do we relate to the past when there is this very optimistic kind of progressive view of what's coming in the future. All of that shifts when you get to World War I. Uh, but the 19th century is, is for that reason an era of a lot of questioning, a lot of questioning about the past and the future and how they relate to each other. So you see that religiously. As, as I mentioned within the Lutheran church, that's really the question that the Lutheran church is facing. They're, they're facing the question of how do we relate to our past? Are we in the those who are wanting to conserve the fast, so the conservatives are saying, well, we're confessional Lutherans. We still affirm the things that our tradition has always taught. Yes, we recognize, of course, our time is different, but we want to bring those truths into the present. Uh, whereas there are the other groups that kind of say, let's break away from the past. So I think uh, among a lot of those questions, you have uh, what are just broader restorationist movements. And, you know, restoration, I'm talking restorationist in the broader sense, not just churches of the restoration as we're, we're talking about here. Um, so you have people asking questions of, well, how do we look at history? Perhaps, perhaps the church has kind of been wrong on a lot of things in history. Maybe we need to really progress or, or get away from some of the, you know, structures that the church has had in the past, some of the liturgy that the church has had in the past, some of the confessions of faith. So there is a, a looking backward religiously, and this is with you know, the Campbellite movements and others, there's a looking backwards that's also a looking forward, which is they're looking back to the book of Acts to say, well, there was perhaps this purer era of religious history, uh, of Christian history in the book of Acts that was the early church. And we see the corruption that happened later and the development and systematization of Christian doctrine. 
and the development of the liturgy and traditions. So maybe that past was pure. So in terms of looking to the future, they're really grabbing onto the far past, or at least their perception of the past. Now, I would take exception to how these groups read the Book of Acts, but, but they, they grab onto the Book of Acts and say, maybe that's where we need to go. So we can kind of push out history and restore what the church was supposed to be in the age of the apostles as we move forward. So that's something that's going on all over the place uh, in religious history in the United States. Uh, that's, you know, that's not just with Joseph Smith. And that's why that era, you have a number of groups. You know, you have the roots of what, of what becomes the, the Watchtower Society or known as the Jehovah's Witnesses around that time as well. And then the Seventh-day Adventists, Christian Science. A lot of these groups are, are in overlapping time periods. You have the rise of, of the Spiritist movements, and then you have Theosophy, which is a whole other kind of fascinating movement and subject, uh, but they're all they're all coming out of a lot of the same questions and turmoil that a lot of people are facing with the questions of what is the past, what is the future, and how do we approach this religiously? So you have this channel uh, that you started. Um, how long has your channel been uh, on YouTube now? I well, the, so the organization that I run, Justin Center, has been around. This is our ten-year anniversary this year. Wow. Um, so you, YouTube was not really the focus until more recently. Mm. So the the channel's been around for that long. Um, you can even go before that. And I had a this is a place I uploaded yo-yo videos actually on my channel because I was like a I used to do like yo-yoing all over the place and contests all over the country uh so that's actually why i started and then it became a theology channel because i just had it so every <laughs> once in a while people find those old videos uh but but it's about about 10 years that i've been you know publicly doing what i'm what i'm doing now in one form or another um so i think the podcast was started 10 years ago was the start of our publishing house and then the podcast started just just after that and and basically what you've been doing is kind of just teaching um your audience uh you know, what is Lutheran theology, what it is, what it isn't, why I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist or a Mormon or whatever group sure. you want to talk about. And and, it, and I think it's important because so like last week, you came out with this video, Five Reasons Why I'm Not a Mormon. And I reached out to you that evening and the next morning we're Zooming and to set up this interview. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the video was that you you took the time to do the research and you weren't trying to do a polemic, a polemic attack, but you just really wanted to actually have just, you know, this is what I believe and this is why these are my issues. And then about five years ago, you actually had another video that you came out with where you uh, gave five reasons, uh, the five issues or whatever that you have with the Book of Mormon. Um, sure. And so you, you've taken the time to do the study and the research. But before we get critical, if you will, I just want you to maybe describe to me, tell me what you find admirable about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, th th things that you want to give them props for. Yeah, um, it, it's always been, it's something that I've kind of always been interested in it just because I think just because it's a group that I didn't know much about <laughs> growing up. And, you know, you, you hear about the LDS church all the time, but it's like, it's a group that I just had never really encountered. It's not like I grew up in, in, a, you know, a heavily LDS area. I mean, I grew up in, in uh, Western Massachusetts uh, and, you know, it's not like that. There's a major presence presence there. Uh, I did have an encounter with, uh, with more missionaries at one point in high school and, and speaking with them, I just was, so, it was like so foreign to me. I was like, I don't know anything about this stuff. Uh, but, but at some point, just in my, yeah, in my study, I, I just kind of realized, yeah, this is something I should probably get a handle on because I just don't really know a lot about it and, and uh, was, was interested there. But I would say the, the things that, that struck me as, as pretty admirable are a lot of the way that, that the LDS church does really take its faith very seriously. And I think especially in, in catechizing or teaching the young people. Um, I think there's something very admirable about, about what is done. I mean, just the fact that, you know, they go on mission. I think when I look at our Lutheran congregations, uh, I, I wish there was as much of a knowledge on behalf of our people of just what we believe and what, what our faith teaches or, or a desire to go and, and do evangelism. Um, you know, those are things that I think we could, we could improve on immensely. So there's certainly something admirable, I think, about the, the drive and the, the importance of teaching and passing, passing things on that we really, really don't have that I would love to see. Um, you know, I also think that, you know, the LDS has, has done a good job of really promoting community. I mean, obviously you have, I mean, you have 
Utah and Salt Lake City, you know, the, the, so there are specific areas where where it is just kind of part of the culture. It moves beyond just the kind of religious sphere, right? It's not just a one day a week, this is important for us. And I think that's something that I would really love to see more. And I've been, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that and talking about that a bit some as well. It's like, how can we um, really make, make sure, especially as we move into a, a more secular world, how, how can we create community? What are some things that, that we can do to really make sure that we are taught and we are equipped and we really know our, our faith well? Um, you know, I think as, you know, you look at the, you know, the education system, uh, of course, with the LDS church and, and you think about the university system, um, these are things that are, that are important that your religious commitments should be essential to how you raise your kids and your religious commitments do certainly shape how you approach education, how you approach everything. Uh, and, and so I would love to see more Lutheran education. Uh, and there, there are Lutheran colleges, I think they do very well. And there are a lot of them that I, that I would recommend, but I think that's, and that's something that really does come out of uh, a lot of Martin Luther himself and his emphasis on, on education. Um, but yeah, I think those are some, some areas where, you know, I would see some, some things that are, that maybe we could learn from, you know, in, in terms of how, how it is that we pass on faith to the next generation. You know, last time I was out in Utah, I was driving around with Dr. Christopher Thomas, uh, wrote the Pentecost Reads Book of Mormon, and riding around, I said, you know, Christopher, you, you look around and you see this extraordinary city that pops out in the middle of the desert. I said, they, they did make the desert bloom, and it is a credit to them. Yeah. Sure. No, absolutely. And I, uh, <laughs> I was speaking with somebody recently about, about this idea of Christian community, specifically Lutheran community. I remember somebody used it saying, well, why don't we have our Lutheran Salt Lake City? <laughs> what the, why don't we do something like this? And, and saying like, there is something to be that is admirable, you know, admirable about, about that. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows where this all goes? I can see down the road communities forming and you know you almost you are starting to see that kind of stuff happening where you yeah. actually like seeing planned christian communities and there was an attempt to do one south of here in naples uh, the ava marie university to do a catholic uh, planned community as i recall that fell through but i can see more and more of that happening so we kind of sure. are emulating <laughs> building a zionic kingdom if you will <laughs> yeah, yeah using their terminology um so you you did the research like i said you made these videos talk about why did you make these videos about Mormonism and why, and why do you think it's important to differentiate what Orthodox Christianity is with that of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Yeah, I think a, a lot of the, honestly, a lot of the videos that, that I do and have done, pretty much all of them are things that people recommended to me. So some of this is just people saying, hey, you should do this. This is a subject that I think would be interesting for you to, to look into. And that really is what has started me on a lot of the things that I've that I've done. And, uh, you know, I do try to do research on, on all of the things that, that I've talked about. I think the, the first, the first video I did, I know was after, just after I had read the book of Mormon and I started, it was the kind of the beginnings of my research. So I was reading some things and I had, was watching some, um, some videos from fair Mormon and others of lectures on all sorts of things. You know, at this point I've read a lot more and I've watched a lot more and I've kind of, I've been on and off engaged in this subject for, for a long time. So I think there's, I've, I've grown a lot in my understanding of, of the, that as well uh, over, over the years uh, since I've, since I've looked into this. So yeah, why, why is it important? I mean, I think uh, that it's important for so many reasons <laughs> to, to acknowledge uh, what are differences and, and figure out what be, we're looking, because we're looking at essentially truth claims, right? We're looking at truth claims of, of who's, speaking the truth and, and is this correct? Because if it is true that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that the Book of Mormon is this, it really was a revealed text. And, um, you know, the, the LDS church really is the church of, of Jesus Christ, like on earth, I, I should be a part of it. And so should everybody. So, so if those truth claims are correct, then, then they matter. Uh, but if those truth claims are not correct, then we have to start to reevaluate all sorts of things. So, so it is a question of truth claims, and it's a question of of whether it's true or not. Uh, and my salvation, my soul, my my spiritual life, like all of these things, are so essential to us 
that we should be able to test these claims and evaluate whether whether these things are true or not. Just as I would say, we should be doing the same thing with with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, as Paul says in First Corinthians, you know, fifteen, that if Jesus isn't raised, then your whole faith is in vain. So if Christ was not raised from the dead, let's give up this whole Christianity thing. So Christianity itself sets it up in such a way that the veracity of truth claims really are. I mean that determines whether you should be part of this religion or not. Because if those things are not, are not true, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be a part of that uh, faith system or that belief system. So uh, I think the same thing is true about, about the Book of Mormon as well. So it, it's really essential that we figure out, do, you, do I believe this is true or do I not believe that this is true? And so a lot of this, you know, we're talking about what, what are some specifics maybe in terms of doctrine that, that really matter. And as we've already talked about, the Book of Mormon itself clearly is, I think, closer to a, maybe his, more historic Protestantism in, in many ways, or at least Protestantism of the 19th century. But of course, as we know, you know, the LDS church and, um, you know, other movements uh, in the restoration, and not all of them, because I recognize there are different structures and authorities and uses of, of other texts as well. But there are a lot of other affirmations. Um, of course, the you know, DNC and Pearl of Great Price and other later revelations as well that lead to some things that are pretty heavily divergent from historic Christianity. So, and, and these are not like insignificant little things. We're talking about the nature of who God is. And I think that's really probably the most key place to start is who is God? Who is Jesus? How do we relate to God? And so when you look at the LDS church in something like classic Nicene Orthodox, they really give two fundamentally different answers to that question. So it, it really is key to say, who are we worshiping? Uh, who is the God that we worship? And what is the relationship between humanity and divinity? Because it's, you know, historic Christianity does says that there is this, this creator-creature distinction that cannot be bridged, right? So that we are not of the same kind of being as God, as God is of a different, God is in fact being itself. So that there, there, is, no, there is no moving from, creature to creator so god is not of the same kind of thing that that we are and i would even say that's really kind of at the heart of what worship is really about is the otherness of god right? that's what that's what holy means holy is god is is totally other so our our whole god as being our object of worship is founded upon his otherness or his distinctness from creation so with the you know with the approach in the lds church to you know, to, and, and I would say, because I affirm a, a theosis, apotheosis would be more of a, would be something that I would disagree with. And we could talk about the differences maybe between, between those two things, but the notion that, you know, that, that I can become what God is, or that God once was what I am, mm -hmm. that we are of the same kind of thing, that children of the father in a more literal sense than God being, being the creator, us being, you know, spirit children of God, that, that fundamentally shapes how we view just about everything. So that's a really, that's a really essential question. It gets to the heart of, of any religion, which is who is the God that you worship? And, and those are the things that Christians saw fit to, to fight for in the early centuries of the church uh, to the point that those are the questions that Christians have historically been ready to give their lives for, mm. because it matters, it matters that much. And, and so, and then, and so for you, so for you, this is, this is very serious that we get the truth, right? Right. That we, that we weigh the truth claims and that, yes. you know, and, and that, you know, you got to compare and contrast where your worldview is, and that is with the LDS. Uh, yes. You know, we can find commonalities in some areas, but we also, you know, sure. this is the thing. I don't like uh, liberal ecumenical movements because right. they just want to paper over the differences. They don't really want to talk about, to me, if you want to have real conversations, yes. you got to acknowledge the differences and talk about them and do it in a mature adult way. And then we can then have conversations about the things that we agree on. Would you agree that maybe the approach that the progressives have taken has probably been the wrong way to approach uh, interreligious dialogue? Yeah, it's not healthy at all. I think because it's it, that's that's a, a large problem with the ecumenical movement. And and I really like ecumenicism in a in a, in its best sense because I think in its best sense it's like let's just throw our cards on the table. This is what I believe. I think you're wrong. You think I'm wrong. It doesn't mean we hate each other or don't like each other. 
maybe, you know, we really love each other, but like we really disagree on fundamental issues. Let's kind of hash it out. I mean, that that's a healthy conversation. When you do have those ecumenical dialogues, which are really just hiding differences, it, it doesn't benefit anybody really. You're just kind of pretending that you're the same, but you're not. There, there's no, not going to be anything productive that really comes out of that. And it seems as kind of dishonesty in a lot of ways. It, it's just not, that's not a helpful way to, to move forward. So I'd much rather speak to somebody who would say, hey, I think that, you know, Joseph Smith was a prophet and I think you're wrong. And I think that you are not part of the true church. And I, I would much rather speak with somebody that's going to be blunt with me. Now, that doesn't mean you're being a jerk, right? So there's, there's, there's a difference between a good discussion or debate and just fighting somebody and, and attacking somebody. Um, so I, you know, after I, after I posted that last video, um, I, I had a couple guys start sending me messages on Facebook that were part of the LDS church and were, I mean, they were just calling me all sorts of names and saying just like the nastiest things you could possibly imagine. Uh, and you know, what, what, what good is that going to do? Is that, I don't know what you think you're accomplishing with something like that, but I mean, there are people, and I'm not saying that's how most, <laughs> most people would have responded. They haven't. I've had some, you know, LDS people respond actually very graciously to what, to what I did and say, oh, I, I feel like, you know, I appreciate that. And maybe they'll, you know, take exception, of course, to what I said, they should take exception to what I said, because they don't agree with me, but, but they'll say, you know, I can tell you to the research and, and that that's much more of the response that I've received to, to be fair. But um, and people from all sides of things can just can just jump at each other in a, in a really nasty way. And like, what the heck is that going to accomplish? Nobody's going to listen to you. You're not going to change anybody's mind. You're just going to make the other person angry and you're going to get angrier. And well, that doesn't help. So you've got to have some kind of a middle ground, right? Between the kind of ecumenism that just ignores differences. And it's like, let's all pretend we're the same. But then on the other hand, the like, I hate you and let's just call each other names. Well, that's not going to be beneficial either. So um, let's, I, I'm always interested in like good, healthy discussion. That's good for all of us intellectually uh, on like any issue. And so it's true about religious issues as much as anything else. So as we talked about, a lot of people thought that you've done a lot of good research. Do you have, um, since this is a book, re, a book, we have book in the name, do you have some books that when you were doing the research on the two videos about Mormonism that really stick out as really good resources? Yeah, the books that I enjoyed the most here, I can grab them here. Yeah, please do. Um, the books that, that I actually appreciated the most, and it's because I, so my, my dissertation was a mixture between theology and philosophy. It's really uh, theological prolegomena, so, but dealing with the relationship between classical philosophy and the development of uh, 17th century Protestant scholastic theology. So anything kind of more philosophical is where I'm going to be most interested. So um, I've got Blake Osler's volumes here in this, this series that I really found uh, very engaging. Um, and I feel, you know, there's what the attributes of God here and of God and gods. And I know he takes some, um, honestly, in terms of his approach to, to the Trinity, he probably has the closest to a, a more orthodox view of Trinitarian theology <laughs> that I've seen in, in, in many other uh, LDS scholars. But, uh, but you, you know, he's a guy you can tell has done a lot of research and has thought through things uh, very much on a philosophical level. And that's, that's what I was looking for, um, you know, more than anything else uh, when I first looked into this uh, was I have uh, Witso's Rational Theology, which I thought was pretty, pretty helpful as well. That's a shorter volume, you know, of course, but, um, but I think Osler probably in terms of the books that I've read that I felt like were the most intellectually engaging. Um, those were, were very helpful to see where, you know, where the LDS thinkers are really coming from in terms of basic philosophical assumptions. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Blake Osler. What a great, uh, yeah, that's, that's great suggestion there to actually, I haven't read either one of those books, but I, I'm aware of his work and, and I know how important, and this is the most interesting thing is that in the last 20 to 30 years, we've seen an engagement. As a matter of fact, I'm going to grab a book here um, where we're starting to see an engagement between um, evangelicals and uh, more Orthodox Christians, you know, uh, Orthodox, small O, um, and having conversations, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Blake Osler is on, I just saw this on the blurb on the back of this book. Yeah, this yeah. is put out by Zondervan, the New Mormon Challenge. And so what's so fascinating is these developments is that we're starting to see some of the leading thinkers within Mormonism starting to embrace a more Protestant understanding of grace, 
We're starting to yeah. hear a terminology and doctrines that, that are familiar to us. You mentioned Osler's book seems to be leaning towards a orthodox view of the Trinity. In other words, is it possible that 50 to 100 years from now, Mormonism could enter into a semi-orthodox fold of Christianity? I mean, do you, do you see the, the, the heading in that direction? It does seem like things are, are pushing in that direction, I guess, as I, as I watch uh, in some ways. But I just don't know how that would be fully possible. I mean, I just, I don't know how it would be possible in terms of the claims that Joseph Smith himself made repeatedly. You know, um, I think it, it, maybe it's different when you're talking about someone like a, you know, Denver snuffer or somebody who, who wants to kind of grab onto basically just the Book of Mormon, it seems like, and, and not the rest of the history. Uh, yeah, and I know he's got his uniquenesses in the way he views things. But uh, so I think maybe he's kind of emblematic of a movement in a more orthodox direction, I think in a lot of, probably in a lot of ways. But I, I, I just have a hard time saying how, how you'd have the consistency. Like how, how do you acknowledge that Joseph Smith is a prophet and come to conclusions that are diametrically opposed to a lot of things that he had said, especially as things develop later in life? I don't know, uh, but, but I mean, that, that's an issue of consistency. So in some ways that's that's not for me to say really right i mean i i don't know where where things could actually go um but i think there certainly is a there when you read older literature and more contemporary literature it's very clear that there is an intention to kind of close the gap in a lot of ways or at least to lessen the significance of that but when you have something like the notion of a heavenly mother right i mean i i just that that doesn't fit in with a it doesn't fit in with like an orthodox uh, traditional Christian Nicene theology. Like I just, th there's a lot that would have to be given up. And once you give up enough that it would come into line with orthodoxy, I guess the question is, is it, is it really, you know, church of the rest is it really a restoration movement at that point? Like, or have you just kind of crossed the line into something else? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we have an example, like uh, for instance, we have the community of Christ, which used yes. to be our, the RLDS, and they've certainly moved in a more, I, I tell people they're, they're, I would equate them to liberal Methodists, you know, they're, they're yeah, yeah. and, and, and that, that's kind of the direction that they've chosen to go in. Now I've had Jackson Washburn on my program. And um, yes. I, I think that he's going to be writing Mormon theology. He's in, uh, be a major, in, in, have a major impact on Mormon theology in the 21st century. He's currently enrolled at Harvard Divinity School. Yep. And uh, one of the most interesting things about Jackson is that he, um, was raised LDS, but then his mom became an evangelical Christian. So during his high school years, he's attending the Mormon ward and mom's church. And so he starts to hear about the idea of grace and he wants to integrate it into Mormonism. And I think that maybe those are the areas where maybe a Jackson can find some commonalities and we can have conversations with Jackson, right? And, sure. and, and, and that might be where, where we could, are you familiar with Jackson Washburn's work? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I am. We're like friends on Facebook and I follow his stuff sometimes. Um, he, he very clearly is a very thoughtful guy. He's a smart guy. He's, he seems, um, you know, someone that certainly would be good to, to engage with in a lot of ways. I guess what, when I, from what I've seen of him, um, you know, I know still that he's, I know he, he's kind of tried to make some uh, inroads there. And, and I know with his work at, at Harvard Divinity, he's kind of surrounded by people from all over the place, probably quite progressive knowing, you know, Harvard Divinity, but uh, he, uh, you know, I know he still holds to, you know, the notion of God being, you know, having another God, having another God, you know, I think, uh, and those are the fundamental issues, right, for, for a Christian perspective. So you can talk about grace, and that's great. Uh, and I'm not saying that's not important. Or you can talk about grace or atonement or those kind of things, but you still get to run to the fundamental question of like, well, who is who is God? And if God has another God, that that pretty clearly sets you up in a pretty different fundamental religious place, right? That and, and I know that he's, you know, he still affirms a lot of that. I know Osler has ways of talking around that that are a little probably closer to orthodoxy as well, but um, but from what I've seen from Jackson Washburn, that's that's where he's at. I know he's he's probably more he seems like he's going to be a leading figure in, and I'm sure he will be, he's very vocal and he's a good spokesperson and stuff, but um, probably for a more progressive wing um, it, from of the LDS church, at least from, from what I've seen, progressive on social issues as well. Um, 
and and this is you know this is some of the some of the difficulty and is that when you see you know churches that maybe are closer you know to um historic christianity on in some ways you also have the adoption of a lot of more progressive ideologies a lot of the time uh, which I wouldn't align with. So it's the same thing that I see when I look at, for example, Vatican II with the Roman Catholic Church is, you know, Vatican II says that, you know, Protestants are separated brethren. It's acknowledging that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, which is good. <laughs> but as a, as a Lutheran, I look at that, I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're not like calling me anathema like you were at Trent. And that's, that's nice. But, but at the same time, when I look at Vatican II, I'm like, that's good. But at the same time, Vatican II is, is really adopting a lot of more, um, left-leaning ideology that I think is really not good for the church. Uh, so, so I wonder about that too, is, is kind of what's the motivation in a lot of people who are moving towards something more consistent with maybe the Orthodox uh, Christianity is, is the motivation a lot of more progressive social issues at, in part, because then you're going to say, well, you're going to move closer in some ways, but also farther in other ways. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I just was, uh, I actually do have a Lutheran, something published by a Lutheran publishing house, uh, who really wrote the Book of uh, Mormon. The oh, okay. Yeah, this one is, uh, let's see, I think it's, uh, yeah, Concordia Publishing House, copyright 2005. Is this affiliated oh, yeah. with the Missouri Synod? Yes, it is. It is. Yep, that's the Missouri Synod publishing house. Are you familiar with this book? No, I actually am not. I didn't even, I didn't know that, that they had released that. I should get a copy of that. Yeah, so this is like the last attempt to revive the Spalding uh, hypothesis that uh, that Sidney Rigdon stole the document and then they used. Okay. Yeah. Uh, really fascinating stuff. I, I, yeah, I yeah. like it because there's a lot of history. There's a lot of research that was done. Uh, I don't think the Spalding thing had, holds any water, but I just thought it was interesting that the, 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 the Lutheran church that you're uh, they decided to publish this book. I, I, found, I find that fascinating. That is interesting. I just, I don't know how I haven't come across that. Nobody's pointed that to me, out to me. So I, the, uh, I would love to The three authors read. are Wayne L. Cowdery. He spells it differently, but he's a relative okay. of Alvers. Howard okay. A. Davis and Arthur Vanek. Are you familiar with either one of those people? I am not familiar with those names at all. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's add it to your collection. This is what this show is all about, folks. You know, let's have exchange of ideas and talk about books. And I, I always like book recommendations. So that's, that's good. good to me. Good, good. Um, is there anything else that you would like to address to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and all their restorationist branches that you think you want to impart to them? Yeah, I guess, I guess my Oh man, there's so much I could say, and I've done a lot, but I'm trying to, how do I summarize my thoughts briefly? Uh, I guess I would just say like what, what matters is, I think you do have to evaluate the truth claims, you know, of, of your belief system and, and really think through them critically and think, is this, is this something that, that is true? Are the truth claims of, of Joseph Smith correct? And I think it's important to evaluate those things because it, it really changes a lot. It kind of changes everything, right? If if he was correct and those truth claims are correct, then we should all go that direction. But if they're not, then that means that that perhaps God is not um, who he was revealed to be within the the LDS Church and and perhaps uh, Orthodox Nicene Christian theology has has correctly expounded upon who who God is uh, and how you can be saved and and uh, how to trust in him and what it means to live uh, in a, in a God-pleasing way and all of those kind of things. Um, you know, of course I, you know, as, as a Lutheran, I'm always very gospel centric. <laughs> you know, my, my thought is always going back to the question of, of the gospel. The question is of how is it that I can be saved? Uh, and, and as a Lutheran, we, we often speak about our theology in terms of, of law and gospel. And when you look at God's law, um, God's law requires perfection. Uh, you know, the book of the book of James says, if you've broken one of, of the laws, you've broken them all. Uh, or, you know, Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. That's, that's the requirement of God's law. God's law says you need to live up to all of his commandments. And when we look, especially at you know, how Jesus explains to us that the commandments are really about the attitude of the heart, uh, more than just outward actions, uh, we've all lusted, we've all 
been greedy. We've all, <laughs> we've all had hates in our hearts. We've all had, had sins, which means that the only thing the law can do is bring death. And, and that the law shows our sin. That's, you know, Romans 3.20. It, it, it exposes us before God. We're, we're guilty before God, who is a holy and righteous judge and who rightly could uh, condemn all of us to hell in an instant. And we would deserve it because we've broken the law. Um, but the gospel is the antidote to that. The gospel that teaches us that Jesus Christ, uh, God's own son, came into the world in order to live a perfect life under the law where we could not to do to do things right to live the perfect human life to restore humanity by living that perfect life uh and all that jesus did in in that life was done on our behalf in his death he paid the penalty for our sins which means that that law hanging over us is wiped out by the cross of christ and in his resurrection he brought he brought new life and so it's really a question of how are we saved and I think that's kind of the, the key question. And we would say, well, how, how are we saved? It's by receiving what Jesus has done for us, trusting in, in him. And when we trust in what Christ has done, we are, he's, he's, it's like Christ is a, is a shield you know, that, that's in front of us, ahead of us, covering us from all of the things that attack us in this life, uh, from the, you know, the accusations of the devil, from uh, the wrath of God from sin and death and all of these things, Christ protects us from that. Uh, he gives us his righteousness and forgiveness as a, as a free gift. And the only thing that we are called to do is, is trust him. Luther likes to use the analogy of a, of a beggar, right? That, that we are, are like the beggar. All we can do is hold out our hands and God wants to give us his gifts. He wants to give us the, the saving grace that he has in Christ. He wants to give us Christ's own life and righteousness as a free gift. And, and that's what, what faith is, is trust. It's trust in what, what God has for us, what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and, and resurrection. Um, and so it's really, you know, when we're talking about the, the Lutheran faith and what we're really going to emphasize and, and what we think is the most important question, it's really, it's really that. It's a question of how are you saved? How are you right before God? Are you right before God because you're trusting in the perfect completed work of Christ, or are you trying to do it in, in some other way? Um, so, so that's, that's just the question that I would, that, that I would leave you with. And just to say, you know, think, think about that and how yeah. you would answer that question. And yeah, I, I, I'm glad you shared that. And I think it's important that we just, you know, say, this is what I believe. And this is why I believe yeah. it. Um, you know, you mentioned you have a publishing house. Maybe tell me about the kind of books that you publish. And also you, you have authored some books. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I run a publishing house. Uh, it's uh, Justin Sinner Publishing. So it's jspublishing.org is the, is the website if you want to check out our books. Um, a lot, so a lot of what we publish is uh, 19th century Lutheran works. It's not all that we publish, but that's kind of what started us off was um, I, I found that a lot of the Lutheran materials were that I was buying uh when i was looking into lutheranism with and not having much money at the time <laughs> so as a college student then working like a minimum wage after college for a little while uh, it was hard to start to afford lutheran books so i started doing some uh, looking online on like google books to see if like are there any old books that i could read for free <laughs> and i found a lot of gems uh, a lot of really wonderful stuff that i that i loved but it hadn't been in print for a number of years so i started the publishing house as a way to say to kind of get the books out that uh, were affordable for people. So people could actually get hard, you know, paperback books that are good, solid theological materials um, that hopefully would be beneficial in a way that yeah, it's, is affordable for them. And just to also bring awareness to a lot of writers and theologians who have had been unfortunately neglected uh, for, for a long time. So I, uh, we started with uh, George Henry Gerberding's The Way of Salvation in the Lutheran Church, which we revised and, and put a new, we have a new, um, updated language and things like that. It's not a translation because it was written in English, but tried to bring it to modernize the English sub for the modern reader. Anyway, so that's what started us off and we've published a lot of things since. So a lot of it is, uh, we've redone a lot of older older books, a lot of 19th and early 20th century American Lutheran books. So we do reprints, but then we also have original books that we publish. And that's something that now that I've actually moved into taking a salary from this, <laughs> so that, that's what I've moved into now. So we actually have someone else on staff doing editing for us and uh, I, we're, we're publishing um, newer materials. So 
theological essay volumes. We've got one out on the doctrine of justification. We've got a bunch of others as well. Um, yeah. And then I, I've written um, books. I've written 10 books at this point. Mm. So uh, I've published on, and I've got a number of articles I published in various, you know, journals and things, but um, yeah, I've published on all sorts of things. A lot of it's academic theology. Um, some of it is a little bit of it is more popular level. I have a book on the Christian life. It's called baptized into Christ, a guide to the Christian life, which is kind of maybe basic level. If you want something about how a, a Lutheran would approach just what it means to be a Christian day by day. Um, that's a, that's a, an intro. Uh, and then another, another one of the kind of more lay level, the volumes is one I did on liturgical worship. So it's liturgical worship, a Lutheran introduction, which is explaining why is it that we worship in the way that we do? Uh, because if you go to a Lutheran service, it can, you know, the first response to somebody who's not from that background will say, this looks very Catholic. <laughs> so we, I give an explanation of like, why do we do things this way? What's the biblical reason? What's, and what's the reason in history that these things develop this way? We, we do that. Uh, my, my most recent book is a, talking about a lot of cultural issues. It's uh, in defense of the true, the good, and the beautiful on the loss of transcendence and the decline of the West. I know it's a long title, uh, but, but essentially going through uh, truth, goodness, and beauty in classical thought and how the West has moved away from the classical perceptions of those things and how I think we should bring them back. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, there's a summary of three of them. I've also written a, a couple books on the topic of theosis, which I know has some probably interest for, <laughs> for Mormon listeners and readers as well. Yeah, that's very fascinating stuff. I, uh, I'm going, I'm going to leave a link in the description to your website. So those of you who are interested in uh, perusing the inventory and perhaps uh, purchase a few of the books, uh, please do that. Um, this was really a cool conversation, Jordan. I really think it's, I, you know, I've had other, like I've had Christopher Thomas, the Pentecostal theologian, come on, and I've had you come on. And I kind of want to have different um uh, different groups within Protestant Christianity and also Catholics. I, I, I would like to get some Catholic theologians on and to sure. kind of talk about, okay, this is what we believe and this is why we disagree. And I think this is how we can actually have real conversations. Um, before um, I let you go, I just want to know, do you have any final words you'd like to share with my audience? I don't know if there's anything else. I feel like I gave my final. <laughs> I feel like already, did. so yeah, that's pretty good. We'll we'll uh, we'll leave off there. I think. I think so. And 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 I just want to say I really appreciate your work. I've been watching your channel for years. Uh, I, I've learned a lot about Lutheranism because to be honest with you, I really never delved into it too deeply because yeah. partly because Lu the Lutherans, because they kind of separated themselves from the rest of the world or within America from the rest of the yep. evangelical world, there was very little cross-pollinization going on. And, you know, I come from the Christian, my, my family comes from a Christian reform background and we're this tiny little denomination, but we've, they call us the Jews of evangelicalism because of the sheer volume of uh, publishing like Zondervan and Baker Bookhouse yep. and Erdsman's and, and then also Calvin College, how influential that is. And so it's like we have this little tiny denomination that like a new international version of the Bible. And then you have this, these huge, these large Lutheran bodies. And it's like, right. I don't really hear that, hear much from them. Do you feel like maybe you guys need to maybe engage yourselves more? Yeah. And that's kind of my goal in what I'm doing, because when I, I'm not from a Lutheran background, I'm from a reformed background yeah. and I, I found Lutheranism through a, a study when I was in, in college. And when I had started investigating the claims of, of Lutheranism, I was like, this is, this is exactly what I'm looking for, <laughs> I think, uh, both just in terms of compelling theological claims, but also I think dealing with some of my existential <laughs> issues as well, just personal issues of like, how do I deal with sin? And, and uh, the question of like, is, am I really saved? Is God's forgiveness really for me? <laughs> and I think that that really answered a lot of those, those questions um, in a really profound way. So I noticed like that the world was, was kind of closed off the Lutheran world, uh, just as you're saying it, it is. And it has kind of been intentionally so because Lutherans have wanted to preserve their identity. So there's certainly some, definitely some valid reasoning in that. Um, but we, we really should, I think, have a, a place at the table in the broader Christian conversation across, well, across the world, but especially I'm thinking the United States. I mean, that's where I live. So um, that's certainly what I'm thinking. And in other countries, it's, it's different, especially countries of the Lutheran heritage. But we've really just been so isolated that we haven't engaged. So um, I, a lot of the things that I've done have really been trying to answer the question, what would I have wanted to exist when I was first looking into Lutheranism? 
And so I've tried to fill in the gaps of what I would have wanted <laughs> for other people, uh, just to say like, know that we exist, know that we're an option, um, putting out books that are like affordable and, and getting greater visibility. So I think, you know, YouTube has really been a great way to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, I've learned, I've learned a lot and I, I just want to, um, I want to honor the work that you've done. Um, I want, I just really appreciate uh, you getting the word out about your faith tradition and uh, let's just keep the conversation going. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. I appreciate it. Well, Jordan, I want to thank you so much for coming on to my program today. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me. Um, and I just want to remind my audience to uh, don't forget to hit like and subscribe and hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. Also, we are available on many of the major podcast formats. So check those out. We do have a Patreon page for those of you who would like to support us. And again, I want to thank my patrons who are supporting me currently. And uh, I also remind you uh, mormonbookreviews at gmail.com if you wish to get a hold of me. Uh, you all have yourself a wonderful day.